Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people that know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that you enjoy the following message. Well, good morning. How are we this morning? Are you feeling blessed? Me too, man. I'm feeling blessed. I love that. Isn't it so simple? I'm so blessed. I'm so blessed. Um, God oversees our circumstances, and we can be blessed because of who God is and what He's done for us in Jesus, which is awesome. So great. Good reminder this morning that we are so blessed. Well, for those of you who were traveling over the last couple of weeks, spring break is over. I know, and it's funny, right? We always talk about this, that after spring break, it's kind of like everybody goes into this weird fog. It's like the summer fog of like, just, oh. And, and so I'm gonna encourage you that as you come on the other side of spring break, especially students, don't give up, stay focused, right? Let's stay focused, let's stay engaged. I know your vacation's coming up, um, but let's, let's stay engaged, okay? So here's the deal, I got some, I got some in my pocket. Hold on. I got a lot of stuff in my pockets. Hold on. Let me, let me sort through all this stuff here. I got a cough drop in case I lose my voice. I've got Blistex because you got to have Blistex everywhere you go. You got you to know that about me. This is important stuff. It's a game changer. But I've also got these things right here. I got, I got these. Can you see what these are? I don't know if you can see what, anybody, everybody see what those are? What are they? They're coins? Lane, can you see their coins? They're coins. You know, these, are, these, these coins are different. I've got a quarter, I've got a nickel, I've got a penny, I'm missing a dime. I don't know if that means that's how the day's gonna go, I don't know, but I'm missing a dime. Uh, but the, the thing about it is they're all different. They're different coins, they have different values, quantities, all of those different things. But there's one thing that all of these coins have in common. There's one coin with two sides. There's two sides to the same coin. So last week we talked about God's goodness. What I want you to know is that when it comes to God's goodness, there's two sides to the same coin. There's God's goodness, and then there's also God's justice. It's important that as we step into this topic this morning, we start talking about justice, and inevitably we have to talk about judgment, and we have to talk about the wrath of God, and all those things, and everybody just kind of cringes and is like, oh gosh, I brought my friend on the day that he's talking about wrath or judgment. But you have to understand, you got to understand God's character, you got to understand his heart, right? So when we start talking about justice, you have to understand that that's coupled with God's goodness. For God to be just, he also has to be good. And for God to be good, he has to be just. And so today we're talking about two sides of the same coin. Now, it may, if you were here last week, it may feel a little bit repetitive. That's on purpose. It's not that Logan's just saying the same thing that he said to you last week. It's because truly, it's two sides to the same coin. You have to understand God's goodness to get his justice, but to understand God's justice, you have to understand his goodness because they work together. Now, understand that both God's goodness and his justice, right, these two sides to the same coin, all of that begins with God's righteousness, This morning, I want you to see point number one, that God is righteous. He is 
perfect in all that he does. For God to be righteous means that he is right. It means that he is virtuous in all that he says and does. In fact, here's what David, here's how David describes God's righteousness in Psalm 97, verses one through two. Here's what, here's what the psalmist records. It says that the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. And yet righteousness and justice, hear this, are the foundation of his throne. I love that. That God's righteousness and his justice are the foundation of his throne. One theologian says it like this. God's righteousness and justice are the anchor of his throne. So to give you the word picture, right? Think about an anchor. An anchor grounds a ship, right? So God's throne is grounded. It's grounded by his righteousness and his justice. So when God reigns and he rules, he does so from his throne that is grounded both in his righteousness and in his justice, which is of the goodness of his character, okay? Follow that line of thinking because we're going to walk through that over and over and over again. God's goodness and his justice flow together out of his righteousness. Now, number two, okay, so we talked about the fact that God is righteous. Now we have to talk about the bad news, okay? There's a little bit of bad news in God's righteousness. See, God's righteous, but we are not, we are unrighteous. Remember, we talked about this a little bit last week. We did the Ten Commandment test. Y'all remember that? We put the Ten Commandments up here on the, on the screen. Y'all remember that? And what we said is that we used the, the idea of the Ten Commandment test. And what we said was, you know, look up at the Ten Commandments and see how long it takes you in a given day to fail the Ten Commandments, right? That's God's perfect righteous standard for you and for me. We're supposed to live up to that. And so here's the perfect righteous standard. Right? And then we get to the New Testament, and then Jesus deepens it. Right? Instead of it being an external obedience, he applies the Ten Commandments to the internal motivations of our heart. Yikes. So if we thought we did really bad on the external stuff, just think about how bad we did on the internal stuff. It's a picture to help us see that while God is righteous, we are unrighteous to our core. In fact, here's what uh, one of the uh, writers of the Old Testament, Isaiah, he's a prophet, in Isaiah 64, verses 6 and 7, here's what he records of humanity. He's, he says this, we have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We fade like a leaf, and in our iniquities we are cast away by the wind. Wow. See, what Isaiah is helping us see is that deep down in our core, what you and I, all what we have in common this morning is that we are unrighteous. It doesn't mean that we're not capable of good things. I mean, I know a lot of the folks in this room, you're pretty good folks. Right? I think that's fair to say. I think that, you know, most people would say, well, yeah, I mean, I've, I've got some good folks in my life. I'd look at a room this size and I would say there's some good people in this room. But understand what Isaiah is saying. Isaiah is saying, well, rather what he's not saying is that we're not capable of good. You're capable of good. I'm capable of some good. Right? I can do, the, do some good things. But at the core motivation of who we are, 
Unlike God, our motivations are polluted. They're tainted by the sin in which we live. You and I, while we're capable of good, are still polluted by sin. Now, here's the problem with this. Because God is righteous, he cannot be in the presence of unrighteousness. That's a problem for you and me. Because God is perfect, holy, and righteous, he cannot be in the presence of unrighteousness, unholiness, or imperfection. In fact, David says this in Psalm 5:4. He says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Pretty conclusive. God even says this to Moses. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses has already heard from the Lord on many different occasions. He's received the Ten Commandments. He's been up to Mount Sinai. He's experienced the burning bush. And so Moses says, God, I want to see you. I, I hear you by the hearing of the ear, but man, I, I just want to get my eyes on you. And you know what God says back to Moses in verse 20 of Exodus 33? Here's what he says. He says, Moses, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Wow, that's pretty dramatic, right? You can't see me and live? Literally, God is telling Moses that because of his sin and because God cannot be in the presence of unrighteousness, for him to be in his presence, our friend Mo would be consumed. That's the truth that you and I live in this morning. God is righteous, and we are unrighteous. And for us to be in his presence, for us to even see him, we would be consumed. Now, let's jump back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Remember, everything begins there in Genesis chapter 1. Some of the most important words in all of the Bible are Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The first words ever uttered in the Old Testament are, in the beginning, God created. Remember that? In the beginning, God created. Listen, everything begins, everything starts with those words. And these are incredibly important words. Because remember, what these words tell us is that God has the authority over all of which he creates. Everything begins and ends with God. Like an artist, right, who creates this beautiful masterpiece. That artist owns what he or she creates. In the same way, because everything originated with God, all authority is given to him. He holds all authority. Now, of his goodness and his righteousness, he creates this group of people, namely Adam and Eve. And you know how he does that? He creates them out of the dirt. Really great, cool story. If you haven't, heard, haven't read that, you should read it. God creates humankind, but you know what he does? He creates them with the intention that they would be perfect. Did you know you were created to be perfect? You were not created to be sinful, to be unrighteous. You were created to be perfect. You were created to walk with him, to enjoy him for all of eternity. You were created to live and enjoy God in perfection. And then Adam and Eve got a little big for their britches, right? Stepped outside of God's design. God's design was that they would live with him, enjoy him in perfection. God's, that's God's design. They stepped outside of God's design, disobeyed God, and became unrighteous. They became sinful. And from that moment on, God had to cast them out of the garden. 
And now we're in the mess that we are in today. Every, ever since then, we now experience the unrighteousness of humankind. Now, understand this, this because this is super important, because here's the pinch. Because God has authority over heaven and earth, all sin is against God, okay? If God has all authority, that sin that Adam and Eve, they stepped outside of God's design is ultimately a, a sin against who? A sin against who? God. It's a sin against God. That's my third point that I want you to see. David demonstrates this beautifully well. Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Y'all remember that story? It's kind of the, it's a tough story to, to, to tell in Sunday school on the felt board. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of tough. So David and Bathsheba, right? David's the king of Israel. You know David, King David, man after God's own heart. You've probably heard that, read. He wrote a whole bunch of the Psalms. Um, really interesting guy. David, in a season of war, the text tells us, instead of leading his army out to, to battle and to fight on behalf of Israel, what does David do? He stays home. Bored man's a dangerous man. Right? Instead of going out to fight with his battle, David stays home, and let's just say on one afternoon, he's sitting up on the rooftop, drinking some coffee, enjoying the sunlight, looks over the landscape, here's the trouble, sees Bathsheba, we know she's a beautiful woman, she's bathing, David stumbles, Bathsheba turns up pregnant, we don't need to go into all the details, again, it's hard to tell, but here's what David does. David t tries to clean up the mess, doesn't he? David tries to clean up the mess, just like you and me. When we do something wrong, what do we do? We try to clean up the mess. So, so David gets this idea, hey, I'm gonna bring Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, by the way, his right-hand man, who is actually doing what he should be doing, right? He's leading the army in battle. He's his chief commander. He's leading the army. David calls him away from battle, calls him home, thinking that, well, you know, maybe if he comes home, He's been tired, he's been away. Well, maybe that's how we'll clean up this mess. But Uriah's so faithful. Uriah's thinking about, golly, but my guy's out on the battlefield. And, and so ultimately, he ends up going back to the battlefield. David thinks, well, plan A didn't work, so what, what else are we gonna do? Okay, well, let's kill him, because that makes sense. So plan B is, well, let's just put Uriah on the front line, and we'll just, we'll just put him out there, and we'll have him killed. And yet, a couple years after all of this, the kind of devastation, the aftermath, all of that kind of fades away. And here's what David says in Psalm 51 of these events. In Psalm 51, verses two through four, David says, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Notice what David says. You only, God, against you only have I sinned. Sure, David had sinned against Bathsheba. That's no doubt about that. No doubt about that part in the story. David certainly sinned against Uriah. My goodness. David has sinned against a whole ton of folks in this story, 
But what's important for you to see is that ultimately David has sinned against God. You know, I was reminded of this even yesterday. You know, God has a way of anytime you're preaching or teaching, teachers, you know this, right? If you're teaching a Sunday school, you get it. You know, that, that week, God almost always teaches you the lesson that you're about to, to preach on a Sunday morning. Yesterday, I said something that I should have never said to my wife. I was dishonoring. It was not kind. And quite frankly, I just should, I should have never said it. And sure, you know what? Immediately the Holy Spirit convicted of me. Doggone it. I knew it. Man, it wrecked me. I went to her immediately and I said, babe, I'm so sorry. You don't deserve that. That wasn't kind. That wasn't honoring. And I should never have said that to you. But you know what God did to me this morning? At five, I don't know what you were doing at 5.30 in the morning, but I can tell you what I was doing at 5.30 this morning. I was being reminded that while I sinned against my wife, ultimately I sinned against my father. Because she's not mine, she's his. She is his daughter that I get the privilege of stewarding for a very short period of time. But she was created for him, not for me. And so I had to go to the Lord this morning and say, Father, I'm sorry. I've apologized to her, but I never repented. I never apologized to you. And you know what? You know the beautiful beautiful part of that? Is that this, this morning I can stand up here in humility because it's humbling, but at the same time tell you that my sin against people is ultimately a sin against God. Now, understand this, that all wrongdoing, all sin, demands justice. All of it. That's my point number four, is that God's righteousness demands justice. It demands it. For God to be good, he has to be just. And for him to be just, he has to be good. But his, his goodness and his righteousness demands that somebody pay for their unrighteousness that you and I walk in. We, we owe him that. We owe him that. God's righteousness demands justice. Now, I want you to think about it this way. How many of you have ever been unfairly wronged? Show of hands. Probably every one of us have been unfairly wronged. Any one of you have ever been accused of something that you didn't do? Yeah, a handful of you. How many of you ever read a story, maybe you've seen a movie, I don't know, whatever, whatever medium, uh, where, where you, you see somebody who's guilty, you know, they go through the court process, and somehow or another, they get off scotch-free. You seen that? What do you say? Oh, no, that's not right. Why is that not right? Because deep down inside, you and I both know that we want justice to prevail, don't we? Because justice is good. And if God is good, then he must be just. And he must punish or make something right that which is wrong. God's righteousness demands justice. And here's the cool thing. Not only does God desire this, desire that wrongs be made right, but he promises that he will make things right. 
God not only desires it, but he promises that he is going to make things right. In fact, in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, God gives John, the apostle John, a revelation. And in that revelation, in chapter 21, verses 3 through 5, here's what God tells John. He says, behold, the dwelling place of God, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Now take note, something has changed. Remember, because in our unrighteousness, God cannot be in the presence of our wickedness, of our unrighteousness, of our sin. Something has drastically changed. Something has altered what God has previously said. He continues, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on his throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. In other words, God is saying, I am bringing justice to the earth. All the wrongs done on this earth, I am going to make them right. Now, the question is, is how is God going to do that? What has to take place for God to make right the unrighteousness on the earth? Well, great question. Paul answers that in Romans chapter 8, which, by the way, Romans chapter 8 is a great, great chapter of the Bible, maybe one of the best chapters in all of the Bible. But here's what Paul says in Romans 8, verses 3 through 4. He says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. Hear this. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, it's important to know that upon the arrival of Jesus, Israel looked to the law as the thing by which they would be saved, right? If, if I just live up to the law, then I'll be saved, right? The unrighteous, I'll become righteous if I can just live by the law. But you know as well as I do, the more we try to do that, guess what happens? It's like quicksand, right? The more we try to do it, the harder it is, the faster I sink. Remember, the law was never meant to save, but only to point us to the reality that you and I are desperately in need of a savior, See, we've already established the fact that we're unrighteous, right? You hear people say this all the time. Well, I'm just a sinner. I'm not perfect. We know that we're, unper- that we're not perfect, don't we? But because we are unrighteous, there is nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to reverse that curse, right? It's like being in a jail cell. How, help- how helpful are you in a jail cell for yourself, right? You need somebody outside of the jail cell who's out there who can pay your bond, who can get you out of the mess that you're in. Because of your unrighteousness, Romans 1 says that we suppress the truth, that we need somebody outside of ourselves to get us out of the mess that we are in. The law was never meant to save, only to point us to the fact that we needed somebody outside of ourselves, outside of the law, who would come and redeem us to get us out of the mess that we're in. There's nothing that we can do to pay the price for our sin. There are no amount of rules or regulations we can follow. There are no amount of yes ma'ams 
or no sirs that will get us out of this bind. There are no number of doors we can open or amount of money that we can earn to purchase our righteousness. The only way that the guilty can be free is if God himself satisfies his own standard. Think about that. The only way, the only way that you walk out of the jail cell that you're living in right now is if somebody on the outside comes into the inside, unlocks the door, frees you of your shackles so that you may go free. And that's exactly what Paul tells us, that Jesus came to this earth as the righteous requirement of the law so that you and I would stand in his righteousness. Jail clothes to robes of the king. That's what you and I are clothed in. No longer is the orange the new black, but rather you and I are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You know, Jesus didn't just come to be a good teacher. He didn't come to be a revolutionary who was you know, progressively pushing against an oppressive culture. Jesus came to live on this earth, to live in perfection on this earth, to live up to the righteous requirement that you and I proved last week that we cannot do. He came to live a perfect life, but he also came to be a substitute. It's a whole theological term that all simply, simply just means that Jesus came to this earth to become a substitute for you and for me, that on that cross, he took your punishment and he took my punishment. He sat underneath the justice of God. He sat underneath the justice of God. He sat underneath the good justice of God for you and for me, so that on the other end, you and I would walk away free, unscathed, There's no other system, there's no other belief, there's no philosophy that can compete, that can rival that truth for you and for me this morning. That's what Jesus came here for. Again, not to be a good teacher, but to give his life so that you and I, deserving of death, may walk away free, may walk away free. Now, I want to turn your attention to the screen. I've got two pictures for you. The first one is that of a courtroom. I want you to see this. That's a pretty ornate courtroom, isn't it? It's pretty great. Now, I want you to picture yourself. We've already established the fact that you and I are guilty, right? We've already established that. So you know that, I know that, we're all on the same page, right? Okay. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to picture yourself standing there before a judge. She looks pretty angry. Good luck. You're standing before a jury of your peers. That jury is about to read what you already know to be true, that you are guilty. And they're gonna hand that verdict over to the judge and the judge is gonna read it in front of all your family, your friends, everybody else. And that judge is gonna say, you are guilty of a life sentence deserving of death. That's where all of us are sitting, every one of us. It's what we all have in common. Now, here's your other picture. This is a picture of a jail cell. Now, I want you to picture yourself there because this is your home. 
All 120, 120 square feet of it. You thought that part, your first apartment was bad. There's your home. That's where you're going to live for the rest of your life. Now, if that's not like enough, stressful enough, I want you to think about this. You're going to live your whole life in that jail cell. Now, let's, move, let's, let's fast forward several years later. It's a dark, cold night. It's the last night of your life. You know that tomorrow your time is up. It's a dark cell. Every clinking and clanking, you hear it. Anxiously awaiting the jingle of some keys coming down that hallway that you know are the keys of the officer who's going to come and who's going to unlock you out of that jail cell and is going to walk you down to the final day of your life. So sure enough, here they come. You hear it, clink, 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 clink. Key goes into the jail cell. Jail cell opens. He walks in. He's got a tough look on his face. He knows, you know, what, you know what's coming. He knows what's coming. He puts you, your legs in shackles, arms in handcuffs, and he escorts you down the hallway. It's a hallway you're very familiar with because you've lived your whole life on that hallway. And he takes you down one corridor. You go through another couple of double doors. And then you get to a hallway that you, you don't really know, you don't recognize. And, and that's not really a huge surprise, right? Because you've never been down that hallway and, and you've never had to walk down to that room that you're about to walk down. But at the very end of that hallway, you see there's a window and the window has some light that's shining through. And, and that officer takes you out through those double doors. Now you find yourself outside and you're thinking, why in the world am I outside? And then you think, well, maybe, maybe this guy, maybe he's, he's given me one, one last opportunity to take a deep breath of some fresh air before I go to my death. But instead, he takes out that key and he begins to unlock your, the cuffs on your wrist and then he unlocks the shackles on your feet and he unlocks a door. He opens the door and he says, hey, brother, sister, the price has been paid. You get to go free. And so you take a step outside of that gate and you think, oh my gosh, how, must, how can this be? I'm guilty, I know I'm guilty, I know what I deserve, and, and now I get to go free. This is a key. There's power in keys, isn't there? See, keys have the power of unlocking doors that are otherwise closed. Keys have the power of opening opportunities that never once existed. Today, you've been given a key. Christ has come down that dark, cold cell, opened up the cell of your life, escorted you down a hallway, through a couple of double doors, and outside and said, today, my son, my daughter, you are free. So how are you going to use the key? 
How are you going to use the key? Maybe for some of you in the room, maybe, maybe for the first time you've, you've, you've heard that, that Christ came to this earth to live the perfect life that you couldn't live, to die the death that you deserved so that you may walk out of your cell guilty, free. That you no longer stand in the clothes of an inmate, but you have been given the righteousness of Christ. You are clothed in his righteousness. Maybe you've never heard that before, and today this is the first time that you can take hold of that key and experience the freedom that is yours, that is available to you in Christ. If that's you, I want to talk with you. I'll be right here. I'd love to talk with you after this service. But for maybe for, for others of you this, this morning, maybe, maybe you've taken that key. Maybe you've accepted that But hear me, you've used this key rather than a standing freedom that you have in Christ, maybe you've returned back to that jail cell. That you don't know how to live in the freedom and so you lock yourself back in that jail cell, back in the sin and the shame and the guilt that Christ once found you in. Maybe you you find yourself, maybe you find some comfort there and so you lock yourself back in that jail cell pretending and performing and trying to live up to the law and trying to do all of this stuff but you find yourself over and over and over again stuck in this cell and you don't know how to get out. Let me just tell you, you've been given a key. Christ is giving you the key to unlock the door, to walk out of that jail cell and to never look back again. Now maybe others of you in the room, maybe you've, you've taken hold of that key You're living in the righteousness of Christ. Man, your identity is firmly rooted in who he says that you are, that you are a son or you are a daughter who is well-pleased. And maybe you're walking in that righteousness. Man, praise God. Then this key becomes a reminder of who you are and where you've been. And it becomes a tool to hand to a friend or to a neighbor or to a coworker to say, hey friend, hey loved one, can I tell you about the freedom that I'm walking in in Christ? That maybe this Easter season, as we look, we got two weeks till Easter, maybe this next two weeks is an opportunity for you to extend the key that somebody gave to you. The key that is Jesus, that has the power to unlock that cell door and allow your friend, your family member, your coworker, an opportunity for freedom, to stand in the righteousness of Christ. As you walk away this morning, I've got a gift for you. As you leave these doors, there's gonna be some friends of mine who are at the doors who are gonna have a key. They're gonna have little buckets filled with keys. As a matter of fact, I purchased a thousand of them. So you can only have one. But I want you to take a key as as your way out, and I want you to notice something. It's kind of interesting because all of these keys are different. There's not a single key that's the same. They're all different because your story is different. Every one of us in the room has a different story. We all have a different story that landed us in that cell. But understand, it was the same key who has let us out. The one thing that you and I all share in common is that it is Christ who has the power to let us out of that cell forever. So what are you gonna do with the key that God has given you? Has justice been satisfied? Freedom is at hand. What are you gonna do with the second chance at life? 
Are you going to run back to your cell? Or are you going to stand in the freedom that's yours in Christ? Let me pray for you. God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. God, I'm thankful for the power of keys. I'm thankful for the grace of God that has entered into my cell on my behalf who took the guilty plea for me so that I can walk free. And sure, Lord, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, we can look upon that and think, oh, God is so angry. And yet at the same time, Lord, we can come face to face with your goodness and your faithfulness, your promise to make all things new, including us. God, help us to walk in that freedom today, to never look back, never return to that cell, but to walk in the righteousness in which we stand in Christ. It's in his name we pray, amen. If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 North Main Street, We hope to see you soon.